All right, go ahead and pull out your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7. This chapter is the go-to chapter in all of the Bible on marriage and relationships. So we've had some fun time being in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talking about marriage and relationships. And as you know, marriage, relationships, these things come with a myriad of questions, don't they? We don't have all the answers to be sure. The questions start early. They come fast and furious, even in the, the young, early days of dating. Who should I date? Should I date? Is, is that a good thing to do? Who's going to date me, right? Um, is, it, is it good to date? To what end? Why, why, are, why am I doing this? Um, they're good questions to ask. And even after you land a date, um, what should I wear? right? Where, where should we go? What should we do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Um, I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> Does he love me? Does he love me not? Right? Does he love me? Does he love me not? Um, countless questions. Why hasn't he called me? Right? Do I need to call her? Um, these questions are, are never ending. They don't just remain in that phase of dating. Unfortunately, but they grow and progress. And even as we are married or looking to, to become married, the questions still remain. And there are no lack of questions concerning marriage and dating and relationships. And unfortunately, not all of those questions are answered in 1 Corinthians 7. That sure would be nice, wouldn't it? But they're not all answered there. However, there are a great deal of questions that we have answered in this chapter. And that is why it's a go-to chapter for marriage, for relationships, because it answers so many questions and does so in such a great way. Starting with verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which I wrote you, is it good? It is good for a man not to touch a woman. There we have an answer to a question. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, it's okay. And that's largely what we're going to be talking about today. Going on in the, the next verse says that each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. That answers a number of questions for us, doesn't it? Questions that are very pertinent for today. That marriage is to be between one man and one woman, not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman, not one man and three women or two women and Five men, that's not the design that God has for us. He says that each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. We go on from here and we have instructions on divorce and when divorce is permitted, when divorce is not permitted. Um, we have lots of general advice for you and your spouse and your pastors to take and to consider when asking and answering these questions concerning marriage and relationships, when and when not, and how, and all these myriad of questions are here, generally speaking, for us to, to go through and to sift through. And I find that it is quite helpful and, and really necessary to take into account who Paul is speaking to when he's writing these things. It's basic Bible hermeneutics, right? We need to understand who is the author and who is he speaking to. And in this passage, 
personally, I see four different groups of people that Paul is speaking to. Now, that varies a little bit. Other people have different opinions about the groups that Paul is speaking to, but I want to take an outline for you, the four groups as I see them in this chapter and how Paul is speaking to these groups when he's addressing these questions on marriage and relationships. The first group that Paul is speaking to that I want to address are those who are married. And we see that um, brought out largely in verses 2 through 5. These verses I already read that it's good for one man to have his own wife. It's good for a wife to have her own husband. That they shouldn't deprive each other. They need to be uh, fully committed to each other, um, both in their covenant relationship and physically as well. That that is good for a, a man and wife to do, to not deprive one another. Um, looking at verse 10 and 11, he's addressing the married very particularly in this passage. He says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. That's pretty clear, right? He's talking to the married, the wife should not leave her husband. Verse 11, But if she does, realizing that we are sinful fallen creatures and we don't always follow the commands that we do, so if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, this term unmarried, I see as a, a second group of people that Paul is addressing. So first, he addresses the married in some situations. We've talked about that in large part up to this point in chapter 7. And a second group that we see addressed are the unmarried. And we see that here in verse 11. In this verse, it seems to pretty clearly be talking about those who have left. So those who are divorced. So if the woman who was married does leave, she should remain unmarried. She should remain divorced. We also see this same word, this unmarried word, the second group that I want to address, being used in verse 8, where Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. And so in this verse, in verse 8, we see unmarried being distinguished from the widows. So he says, I'm talking to the unmarried and to the widows that you should remain even as I. So I don't think that the unmarried are in the same group, the same category as the widows. I think the widows are a different group from the unmarried. I place them in this third category of people that Paul is talking to. So we have the married, the unmarried, and the widows. Um, if you look at the end of the chapter, you can see where Paul addresses the widows elsewhere in verses 39 and 40. Paul says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So if somebody's married and their spouse dies and they are from that point forward a widow or a widower, this is once again the third group of people. And going back to the unmarried, um, so we saw them in verse 11 where they were distinctly talked about as being released from a spouse, so as being divorced. Verse 8, we saw that they weren't um, equated with widows in the same sense. And I want to show you one more verse on the unmarried in verse 34. So look with me at verse 34. It says that the woman who is unmarried and the virgin is considered is concerned about the things of the Lord. But that first clause there, that the 
unmarried woman and the virgin. So in this verse, we see that unmarried is distinguished from virgins. So the four groups, four categories of, as I have them laid out are the married, the unmarried, who are called divorced in verse 11. Verse 8, they are distinguished from the widows. Verse 34, they're distinguished from the virgins. And then the fourth group would then be the virgins. And that's where we're going to spend the, the bulk of our group, the bulk of our time today is talking about this fourth group, the virgins. Those who are not joined in marriage, either covenantally or physically. There's no covenantal, no physical union with um, with anybody else, but they are virgins in the same sense that you and I would use the term today. They've never been married. And again, I think it's important for us to keep these groups in mind as we consider this passage and consider the, the text before us today that's going to be dealing largely with virgins. So if you have moved around a little bit, let's go back to verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul addresses these virgins. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. Now, when he starts off the, the verse in this way, now concerning virgins, this is something that he has done in the past. He did this back at the beginning of chapter 7. We talked about how it's likely that these Corinthians had written a letter to Paul asking him, a number of pointed questions. Hey, Paul, you're, you're an apostle, right? You know us pretty well, and you know the Word of God pretty well. You have this direct line, this direct access to him. And so they asked him back in uh, verse 1 of chapter 7 about marriage, about uh, touching a woman. It says, so now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So we think that they were writing him about marriage in general, and Paul answers those those thoughts, those questions from verse 1 to verse 24 of chapter 7. And now here he says, now concerning virgins. So they were asking specifically about virgins, it seems. And he answers that here in the latter part of um, chapter 7. We have three more occurrences that we'll get to later in the, the book of 1 Corinthians of them asking questions. Um, chapters 8 through 11, it seems like he's answering a question about meat sacrificed to idols because he uses the same terminology. Now concerning meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Um, in 12 through 14, he's answering a question. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. And then lastly, in chapter 16, he says, now concerning Apollos. And he has a brief little short um, dissertation about Apollos. But it says, now concerning virgins, so your question about virgins, he's going to address it. He says, I have no command of the Lord, but I gave an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. And once again, we want to uh, hearken back to what we, we learned in verse 10, because he used the same kind of illustration back verses 10 through 12, where he says um, that the Lord himself has given a command. So verse 10, this verse we looked at a little while ago, talking about the married. He says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And so what he's doing here is he is saying that the Lord Jesus himself, when he was walking amongst us, he gave instructions. He gave commands concerning marriage. And so I'm going to appeal to what he has said. Why would I not point to what the, the perfect God, the all-knowing God of the universe has said in his 
word when he was here and he was speaking to us. And so he quotes one of the few rare times that Paul quotes from the Lord from Matthew 6, 19, 6 through 9. Matthew 19, 6 through 9. And we should have that up on the screen. It says that, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then down in verse 9, he says, And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. And so Paul is using this same example that, that Jesus gave. He's teaching from the words of Jesus himself, saying this is what not I say, but the Lord himself says. Now in verse 12, he says, but to the rest I say. And so this is, I think here he's addressing a subcategory of those first group of people. So before he was speaking in verses 10 and 11 to two believers who were married together. And then here in verse 12, he starts to address split marriages. Somebody who is married to an unbeliever. And one unbeliever married to a believer. And he says to the rest, to that split group, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, that he must not divorce her. Divorce, divorce her. Um, and so obviously Jesus never spoke on this specific issue. He never spoke about what do you do if there's one married person and one unmarried person. And so Paul isn't just coming up with something on his own, but he's saying, this is something that I'm speaking apart from what Jesus had spoken while he was here on earth. So we need to be directed and driven by a proper bibliology here, by a proper understanding of how God has spoken his word to us, how he has spoken all things, that all scripture is God-breathed, right? It's all coming from God, that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And in first, or in Second Peter, rather, 1, 20 and 21, Peter, who actually pointed to Paul and said, yes, his writings are scripture, right? But here in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So, no prophecy comes from one's own interpretation. So Paul isn't just making this up on his own. The Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul. And so when we, say, when we read that he says, this is what I say, not the Lord, we shouldn't take this as not being apostolic and not being uh, authoritative as being spoken from God. That's a, a trap that far too many have fallen into. And so we don't want to have that understanding about this. It's authoritative, authoritative and it's from God. However, it is somewhat nuanced still. Um, he says in verse 25 that I have no command from the Lord, but I give an opinion as one. So opinion, this is a, a kind of tricky word in the Greek. It's not used often, only a handful of times, eight times to be exact in the New Testament. And it's translated by our translators in a number of different ways because it is such a nuanced word. Um, it's translated as decision in Acts 23, that he's giving a decision. Back in 1 Corinthians 1.10, a verse that we went over in our 1 Corinthians series, um, it's translated as judgment. 
where it says, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So it's translated opinion, translated judgment. Uh, Elsewhere, it's translated as consent or purpose. So it's a, a difficult word, but it's regardless of whether we understand that as saying opinion or judgment, we need to understand that what Paul is doing is he's sharing his recommendation to a particular situation to this group of people who have asked him a very pointed, very specific question about virgins. There's no absolute command for all circumstances. And so we need to take that into consideration as we go throughout this passage and see what he has to say um, and realize that in verses 28, 36, 38, in each of those verses, he says, if you don't heed my advice in this situation, you're, you're not sinning. So it, it truly does kind of have an opinion smell to it, but we don't want to cast Paul out and say that he's not authoritative in speaking it. He doesn't um, have this apostolic authority come and go upon him like some people might say a modern-day prophet has. Paul was a prophet. When he spoke, he spoke prophetically. He didn't speak in error. And so we have to have that, that understanding when we're approaching this text. And he says that his instruction for them is to remain as they are. He says, I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. So just because it's an opinion doesn't mean it's not authoritative, doesn't mean I'm not trustworthy is what he's saying. He says, I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So his advice here is to remain as he is. And if you remember back to last week to what Jeremy called his Joel Osteen sermon um, to just you be you, you do whatever you want, right? Not whatever you want, um, it's conditioned, of course, but you be you. Uh, that same phrase, to remain as you are, is mentioned several times in the passage leading up to this. In verse 17 and 20 and 24, he uses that same terminology, to remain as you are. You don't need to change, uh, once again, conditionally. And that's that whole section was kind of leading up to this. So when he says that you don't need to change your ethnicity, you don't need to change your status in life if you're a slave, you don't need to become free in order to be in Christ. If you're free, you don't need to become a slave in the physical, literal sense to be in Christ. You just remain as you are. And that's all for the application of this principle. This whole chapter is about marriage. And so that was kind of building up to this passage saying, remain as you are. And so... Uh, I think that we have three reasons that Paul gives that it's good for virgins to remain as they are. So if you're taking notes, three reasons that Paul gives that it's good for a virgin to remain as they are. The first is because of the present distress, that they're to remain as they are because of the present distress. Second, it's because marriage is a temporal reality. And third, because of the freedom that it gives us to serve Christ without distraction. In the first one, that uh, it's good for a virgin to remain as they are because of the present distress is found in verses 26 through 28. I'm going to go ahead and read those. 26 through 28. I think then that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. 
Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet just yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. So first thing I want to know is that when Paul's speaking of virgins back in 25, that word is used in the, the feminine gender, so it's feminine in nature. But he adds to it in verse 26 by um, saying it is good for a man to remain as he is. So he's not just speaking to, to man or to woman, he's speaking to both genders, both sexes, um, to those who, once again, have not engaged in, in marriage. They're not covenantally, they're not physically bound or united to another. And the purpose that he gives here in verse 26 is because of the present distress. And this word could also be translated as present violence, the present distress or present violence that there happens to be. And some have suggested that the present distress or violence that he's referring to could be talking about a, a famine, a localized famine there in Corinth. We don't have a whole lot of evidence to, to back that up. It could be talking about some kind of localized persecution that the Corinthians went through. Um, but if we look down at verse 28, and we understand that in relation to the, the trouble of this life, um, or worldly troubles, as other translations put it, then I think it helps us to, to see this in more of a, a big picture type sense, more of a, a general speaking of the present evil age that, that Paul often talked about, that we are in this present evil age, and because of this present evil age that we are in, it might be best for some to remain as they are, to remain single, to remain virgins. Kittle, who is an authority on the Greek, the go-to authority on the Greek, suggests that this word speaks to the tension that's between our new creation and our fallen world. That's something that we can relate to, right? As new creatures, those who have been uh, regenerated, those who have been infused with life and the Holy Spirit, there's tension between uh, a new creation in Christ and the fallen sinful world, isn't there? We don't see eye to eye, that we're not always on the same page, that there's, there's something there, and there should be something there because we are not of this world. We should be distinct and different from them. Now, many people actually seek after change. They, they love change. They thrive on change and things being different, not being the same. I'm not one of those people. I think many of us find ourselves much more comfortable with the familiar, much more comfortable with the things that we know and that we're used to, um, and we avoid the unfamiliar. We avoid change and the unknown. We like where we live, and so we stay there, right? We're creatures of habit. We like where we work, so we stay there. Uh, we like the things that we do, the things that we eat. Paul was not of that persuasion, right? Paul didn't mind change at all. Paul lived on the move. He didn't stay long in one place, and so to think that Paul was saying that well, just remain as you are out of a sense of apathy would be to take the wrong perspective because that, once again, does not match with the character and the, the personality that we know of Paul. He's not just saying, well, just sit back and, and let's see what happens. You know, whatever will be, will be kind of thing. Um, just settle in your, your lazy boy and let life come at you as it will. That's not Paul's mentality. And so we shouldn't understand that that's his, uh, his purpose in saying just remain as you are. Remember that Corinth was a very sexually liberal church, right? 
Um, back in chapter 5, we read about this man who had his father's wife. And Paul said, that, that was okay with you guys. The Gentiles looked and they thought, that's ridiculous. How, how can that even be a thing? But it seems like the, the Corinthians, they weren't really phased by it too much. In chapter 6, we read about them um, uniting themselves with prostitutes. And again, that didn't seem to phase them all too much. That was kind of par for the course in the Corinthian church. They were very sexually liberal. Um, again, in chapter 6, such were some of you, right? Homosexuals, effeminate, um, idolaters, adulterers. You guys used to be that. And so Paul, speaking to this church that has gone through all this and saying, it's okay if you remain single. To us, that sounds kind of normal, right? It's like, okay, well, what's, what's the big deal about remaining single? That doesn't really seem to to say anything. That's kind of obvious. It's okay if you want to remain single. But um, he was speaking to this church that was going through all kinds of stuff, right? And they weren't really clear on the bounds and what was okay, what wasn't okay. They had the Jews coming in and saying, well, God has given a command to be fruitful and multiply. And so you better go out, you better be fruitful and multiply. And at the same time, they had other Greeks or Gentiles come in and say, well, you need to separate from the flesh. This kind of Gnostic idea, right? That the flesh is bad. We need to stay away from the flesh. Um, they were embracing asceticism, which said, deny the flesh. You know, don't eat, don't engage in, in things that you like. And they thought, oh, I, I like marriage. And so maybe I should abstain from marriage. And Paul's saying, no, just remain as you are. You don't need to be driven to do one thing or another. It's not going to make you more acceptable in the eyes of Christ. Um, you need to remain as you are. One of the reasons, again, was because of the present distress, because of the present struggles, which we should expect, right? Jesus tells us in John 16 that in this world, you will, what? You'll face troubles, right? They're going to come. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. And Paul, of all people, knew this, didn't he? Paul, who was constantly beaten, Paul, who was imprisoned all over the place, Paul, who was chased out of cities and had people despise him. Remember in Acts 23, Paul had a group of people make a vow that they weren't going to eat until Paul was killed. He wasn't the most popular guy in the area at the time, right? Paul underwent persecution. He knew what it was to, to undergo persecution. Uh, to undergo these these difficult times. And clearly, he would be in a position to advise people that it's better to go through these difficult times, through these times of distress and persecution and trouble without the added burden of a wife and, and children. Can you imagine being persecuted in the way that Paul was while having to care for a wife and, and children and having to think, well, so-and-so's at home and and I'm locked up in prison, I can't do anything about it, or even going out with them on the road and knowing that there are people who are chasing you down, seeking your life, Paul certainly would have known that this was an added burden to, to the virgins that he was speaking to, that he was addressing. It wasn't even 15 years after he wrote this letter that Nero comes on the scene and completely demolishes the, the Christians and persecutes the Christians. That persecution doesn't let up for some 200 years. And Paul is very aware of the, the persecution that they were to be facing. And Paul later writes to Timothy, 
in 2 Timothy 3, says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise, not a very good promise, not a promise that we often claim, um, but all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's something that we can and should expect. Even us today, we live in a, a very blessed time in a very blessed country, and we don't often have to think about the the worries of this distressed time, about the worries of persecution when seeking a, a spouse. But it's definitely something that even in the coming days should be taken into consideration more and more. It's something that Paul was advising the Corinthian church to take into consideration before uniting themselves to another, to count the cost. If you're going to get married, if you're going to make this lifelong commitment, the greatest commitment that you will ever make in your life, you need to understand that we are living in present distress, in times of trouble, times of violence. He's preaching against this idea of thinking the grass is greener on the other side. Those people are married and I want to be just like them. Or these people are, are single and I want to be just like them. He's saying, you remain as you are. You don't need to seek a wife if you're single. If you're married, you certainly don't need to seek to be single, but you remain as you are in the Lord. The second reason that Paul gives to that it is good for a virgin to remain single is that marriage is a temporal reality. Marriage is just something that is really a, a blink of an eye in the scope of eternity. And it's hard for us to get our, our minds around that, but that's the, the truth, the reality of Scripture. Jesus spoke in Mark 12 to marriage, and he said that uh, in, in heaven we're neither going to be married nor given marriage, but we're going to be as the angels. And to a lot of us, that might not be, again, our favorite verse that goes right up there with, you will be persecuted, right? Um, which is good for, for those people who have that understanding of that verse. But it's a, a promise that marriage is, is temporal and we need to have that understanding, that mentality of marriage. Let me read to you uh, verses 29 through 31. This is where Paul kind of expounds on this idea of the temporality of marriage. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-nine through 31. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. That might catch us off guard a little bit, right? Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. And those who buy it as though they did not possess. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. And so again, Paul's trying to remind us that marriage is temporal. We will neither be married nor given in marriage in heaven. And Jesus just says that outright. He doesn't give any kind of special conditional um, exemption for those who are married under a certain type of marriage or a certain kind of marriage or in a certain place. He says without apology, a blanket statement that nobody in heaven will be married nor given in marriage. Um, that's something that we need to, to understand that it's a temporal uh, institute, not an eternal institute that has been established for us here in this time. And it is the purpose of marriage largely is to, to point us to Christ. It's a picture of Christ and his union with the church, that the church, the bride of Christ, will be united with him. Those who have entered into that communion, that 
lifelong covenant with Christ. We'll be united with him at, at the end. We will, be, we will be brought together in that, that union for, for all eternity. And no matter how good your earthly marriage is, if you don't know Christ, you are not fulfilling that marriage to the extent that it should be demonstrated, that it should be displayed. You will still, in the end, end up in, in hell for all of eternity, paying the penalty for your sin because you haven't put your faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross. Our marriages are a picture of our eternal union as a church with Christ. And even if we are not married to the virgins who don't have that earthly union with another, they are still united with Christ for eternity. And that's the beautiful picture of marriage, which can be enjoyed without um, engaging in this temporal form of marriage on earth. Paul is reminding them, as, as he often does, to look to eternity, to look to the future. In Colossians 3, Paul tells us to set our mind on things above. Uh, Philippians 3, he says that your citizenship is in heaven. We need to embrace that heavenly citizenship. We need to live in Christ, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's the kind of mentality, the, the kind of picture that he's wanting to get across here. Not to live in the present, but to look forward to eternity. Romans 13, 11, Paul says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Again, we're, we're closer to Christ right now than when we first believed. And we need to live with the realization that the present world is passing away. That life as we know it is just a blip, just a, a twinkling of the eye, right? And in eternity, it's not, not going to be the focus. And so we shouldn't put our focus on marriage right now. And again, it needs to be a balance. We're not to ignore our spouse, of course, right? But we need to live with the eternal realization that that is still a temporal relationship. The most important relationship we'll have on this earth, but temporal nonetheless. And then he goes on, he talks about not just having that understanding with our marriage relationships, but in all aspects. He says, to those who weep, you are to live as though you do not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as they did not possess. So don't get so caught up in this world that you aren't living for God in eternity. It's a, an ever-present struggle that we all face, that we all have to deal with. 1 Corinthians ten eleven. here we'll see in a couple of, couple of chapters. He says, now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Paul understood himself and the Corinthians to be in the end of the ages. Ever since Jesus was walking the earth, that's when the, the end of the ages has come, right? People often ask, are we living in the end times? Well, yeah, for, for 2,000 years since Christ was walking the earth, right? We are the church and we are living in the end times until Christ comes back again. And as such, we need to have that focus, that mentality that he is going to come back for us and we need to focus on eternity. And turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul expounds on this a little bit more. 2 Corinthians 4.18 talks about having this eternal focus. He says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
I'll jump down to verse 6 of chapter 5. It says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we, were, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That was Paul's heart, Paul's desire to be pleasing to the Lord no matter where he's at. He said, I want to be home. I want to be in heaven for eternity with God. I want to be face to face with my Lord. And I'm not, but I want to be pleasing to him in every respect while I'm here in every way that I can. And that should also be our desire. We should be marrying and matching that same desire. And in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, we should have those up on the screen. And John says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. We need to focus on eternity and not get caught up in things that are passing away. Even the good things like marriage can be a distraction from eternity. Once again, we need to have balance, not to be all caught up in eternity to the point that we are neglecting our, our day-to-day responsibilities, the stewardship that God has placed on us now. Paul, speaking to the same issue, told the Corinthians, or the Thessalonians rather, um, they weren't working. They were just waiting for Jesus to come back. And they were saying, hey, Jesus is coming back, so we're not going to work. And he said in 2 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 2, he said, um, you guys need to focus. You need to work faithfully in spite of the fact or in light of the fact that, that Christ is coming back. So don't neglect your responsibilities now, but don't get so caught up in them that you aren't looking to the future, to the eternal aspect of, of who we are in Christ. So Paul says, it is good for virgins to remain as they are because of the present distress, because of the temporal nature of marriage, and thirdly, because of the freedom that it allows to serve Christ without distraction. To be single, to be a virgin, allows a great amount of freedom to serve Christ without distraction. Not necessarily a negative distraction, but uh, more, more focused than those of us who are married, who do have um, children. Uh, children are great. Certainly distraction. Right, boys? Um, and we need to realize that. And Paul talks about, not Paul, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 26, or Matthew 6, uh, 25 through 34, talking about the, the materialism and how it distracts from uh, things that we're supposed to be doing. He says, for this reason, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink. And then he says, look at the birds, look at the grass. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. God takes care of the grass. God clothes um, the flowers. He will then take care of you. So don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, or what you will wear. For the Gentiles, Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we are not to 
um, not to be distracted with all these things. God realizes that um, the the everyday ins and outs of life can be distracting. And marriage is certainly no exception. We can be distracted by marriage, even though marriage is in and of itself a, a good thing. I have this old antiquated quote from uh, Matthew Henry who speaks in this antiquated language I want to read to you. He says, Therefore, do not set your hearts on worldly enjoyments. Do not be overwhelmed with worldly cares and troubles. Possess what you must shortly leave without suffering yourselves to be possessed by it. Why should your hearts be much set on what you must quickly resign? The fashion of this world passeth away. It is daily changing countenance. It is a continual flux. I thought that was kind of an ironic quote because of the language that he uses. Um, it's not something that we would use today. That's not how we would point, uh, put that, that same thing, that the fashion of this world passeth away. It's daily changing countenance. It is a continual flux. Even the language that he uses to communicate this point is outdated and, and passeth away, right? And so for us to put too much stock in, in today is unwise. It's not good. Um, think back again to, to Mark 12, another reference from Mark 12, that same passage where Jesus talked about marriage and how marriage is temporal. We're not going to be married in heaven. Towards the end of that chapter, we read about that, that poor widow. Remember the, the widow who didn't have much at all, and she took her two mites and she gave them to the Lord, and how she was commended for doing this, and how difficult that would have been for, for anybody to do. But understanding that she was a widow and she had more freedom to be able to do that, I don't think that it would be as, as easy or even advised for somebody who is married to offer that same kind of sacrifice, to give to the level that that widow was able to give. She is forever commemorated in the Bible as this honorable widow who gave all that she had to the Lord. And she was able to do so because of the, the merit, freedom that she had from marriage in the Lord because she was um, unbound to a spouse. 1 Corinthians 10.31, a verse that we should all live by, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And then once again, um, that same verse that we read in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That should be our desire. Um, and there's a, a special particular way to be able to do that as somebody who is single and serving the Lord. Now, lest we think that Paul has it out for marriage, let's remember that Paul himself was likely once married uh, as he served in the Sanhedrin, being able to cast his vote for, um, for certain things to happen. So he was once married, 1 Timothy 4. Uh, Paul condemns false teachers who are forbidding marriage. So this isn't a blanket statement saying that it's bad to be married, Let's not understand it in that way. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is talking to young widows and, and they're counseled to marry and to have children and to manage homes. So again, different situations, different circumstances need to be addressed and assessed differently. And then 1 Timothy 6, Paul talks about fighting the good fight of faith. And that is something that we are all to do in whatever position the Lord has us, whether we are 
single, whether we are married, uh, whether we are divorced, it should be our goal, our desire to serve the Lord. And so once again, we need to understand this passage as speaking to these Corinthians in this special, particular context, in this particular time. Um, and it offers, offers us advice and um, general principles that we can take and we can glean from, but it's speaking to them. And so I want to close by just sharing with us and, and asking, well, what do we do with this? How do we take and understand this? So what about us today? Um, first of all, I think we need to understand that our salvation, our position, our standing with God is in no way dependent upon our marital status. Paul tells them, if you're single, remain as you are. If you're married, remain as you are. You need to serve the Lord. That needs to be our focus, to focus on him, focus on, once again, eternity. To not get so caught up in the things of this life. And if being single helps you to better do that, to better serve the Lord, then all power to you. That's, that's great. That is good. That is blessed of God. And um, that needs to be our focus, to focus on him. We ought not to look at singleness as a problem that needs to be fixed, but rather as an opportunity to serve the Lord. And that goes for both single people and married people. Those of us who are married can oftentimes push people who are single to, to get married when maybe that's not what God has for them. That's called a, a gift right here in the same chapter that some people have been given that gift of singleness and they should take that shape. They should embrace that and, and hold on to that. For those of us who um, maybe don't think that that is a gift that, that you have, um, but still find yourself in that situation of being single, take those, those blessings that the, the single person who does have that gift treasures and holds on to and embrace those, those treasures and live in the moment, in the place that God has you for his glory and for your good. And then whether we, we get married or not, we are to look forward to the ultimate picture of marriage, that we are to be united with Christ, that we will be bound for eternity with our Lord, with our Savior. We will be glorified in Him, and that should be, um, that should be what drives our life, to realize that we are united with Christ, and we will one day be bound to Him for all of eternity. What a blessed thought. What a blessed hope. So in whatever situation you are, live to the glory of God with your eye to the future, realizing that we just live in a temporal world and we have this time, this opportunity to glorify him. We should take each opportunity and use it to the best of our ability. Let's pray. God, once again, we thank you for your sovereignty, realizing that you have placed each one of us in the situation that we are in, God, I thank you for our marriages in this church. For those that are struggling, I pray that you would help them to, um, to thrive, that you would rejuvenate them and they would be a godly reflection of the marriage of the son and his bride. For, for those who are single and, and don't want to be single, they're looking for somebody. God, I pray that they would find somebody who is in the Lord as you would will and that in the meantime they would live in the situation that you have them uh, serving you and making the most of the opportunity that you've put them in. And God, I thank you for those who 
you have given the gift of singleness to and for the, the blessing that they are to the church, for the unique ability that they have to serve you and to serve your bride. God, I pray that each one of us would be used of you, that you would take us and make us content in the situation that, that we should be in. Help us to, to strive to please you more and more each day. I pray this in your name. Amen.